morning. All right, I appreciate that intro, Trav. All of that was accurate, everything he said. It's all right. I accept it. Um, last week, Pastor Kent Caps, who was one of the planting pastors here at TCC, preached a very helpful sermon. And in it, uh, as he began, he, he mentioned how he kind of felt like a father to many here at TCC. And uh, if you're going to think of Kent as a father type, you can kind of think of me as crazy cousin Eddie, who you just, <laughs> who you just can't get rid of. He's always around. He's always just kind of popping up at random times because... Me and my family, we, we love it here. We want to be here um, whenever we're in Raleigh. My wife's family lives in North Raleigh, so when we're here, we like to pop in at TCC. We love this place, you guys, and we certainly love these elders. So thankful to be here this morning. Um, Daniel chapter 4, we're going to read uh, verse 37, last verse in the chapter, and then I'm going to pray, begin studying God's Word. So Daniel chapter 4, verse 37, says this. The Word of God says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will use the Word to change our hearts this morning. God, please help us to find our satisfaction in you, our hope in you, to, to see that we can love because you have first loved us. To see that we can walk toward the cross with the world behind us. No turning back. No turning back. So God, please move us closer to your heart this morning. Help us to exalt in all the, the benefits of Christ for us. That we are your children. And God, please create in us just a greater awe of you that we want to live for your glory, that we can find our joy in you and our satisfaction in you. God, we love you and we thank you for this time. Let not your word just bounce around this room now, but let it land in our hearts so that we're changed for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, it's summertime, and summertime has some really cool things that kind of come along with it, right? Um, some things to me that I think of when I think of summertime, one is fun in the sun, Right, enjoys that. Maybe for you, maybe you think of, the swim, of going to a swimming pool. You do that occasionally. Um, another for me, and most people, is ice cream, right? You want ice cream in the summertime. For me, it's not just ice cream, it's homemade ice cream. My wife makes awesome homemade ice cream, and for me, it's homemade peach ice cream. Um, yeah. Um, and I also think of fireworks. You think of fireworks when you think of summer? Um, we do in South Carolina, for sure. Um, but when I think of summer, there are a few less pleasurable things that kind of go along with it. Um, namely, things that happen in my yard. Uh, one of those is fire ants. My yard is filled with giant mounds of fire ants. Another one is mosquitoes. I feel like my, my yard is a breeding ground for fire ants, for mosquitoes. And the biggest headache of all um, that seems to be much worse in the summertime are weeds, right? Uh, we all have them in, in any yard. Any grass has weeds in it. And they, they, they spring up everywhere. They grow fast. They um, spread like crazy. They just pop up and they they pretty much just kind of can choke the life, can choke the beauty out of the flowers and the things that we want to grow there. So we all need the weeds gone. Well, one summer, I, uh, I desperately needed a job. So uh, this was back in the golden decade of the 90s, about 96, 97. I, I needed a job bad. So I went to um, a golf course where my buddy was working. 
and he was, he was there. He introduced me to, to the golf course pro. If you know how that works, he's kind of like the king of the course, right? He, he's the guy who kind of runs the show, and so he introduced me to the pro, and uh, the guy told me, he said, we're not hiring right now. I said, I said, sir, I need a job bad. I said, can you please give me a job? Just give me a shot. Just give me something. I'll show you. I'll work hard. Anything you got. Um, so he, he began looking around. I could still picture it. He looks through this big old window out toward the first tee, and, and I look too, and as I look out there, I see what looks to me to be like a, a rainforest or a jungle boxed in by landscaping timbers. <laughs> and I was like, uh-oh, that used to be a flower bed. So look out there, and he, he looks at it, and he says, all right. He said, son, I uh, need you to uh, pull all those weeds in that flower bed. <laughs> and now I was like, all right. So I'm from the country. I'm thinking we got a few quick solutions to this. We'll get a few tubs of Roundup, or well, if that doesn't work, we'll have a controlled burning. And if that doesn't work, we'll, <laughs> we'll, get, a, we'll get a tractor and a plow. And we'll, yes, sir, we'll take care of this. But there were apparently a few um, flowers down at the bottom of it somewhere, and uh, he wanted me to pull the weeds. So I said, all right, yes, sir. Thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it. If you need me, I'll be outside pulling weeds till they're gone. Um, and I'll never forget what he said to me. He looked down at me, and I won't use his language. It would not be appropriate. But he looked down at me, and he said, uh, he said son, he said, anytime I look out there today, he said, I better see nothing but rear ends and elbows. And you kind of you get the picture, right? <laughs> because you're not, you're not going to pull weeds unless you're bent low. He knew, he knew that for the weeds to go, I would have to be bent low. For the weeds to go, I would have to be bent low. Now, in today's text, King Nebuchadnezzar is going to learn a lesson about having his heart bowed low. And it, it is the lesson, the, the lesson that all of us need to hear and need to know and need to take to heart. Um, because we've all got weeds in our heart. We've all got weeds in our lives, things that, choke out, things that choke out the life, things that choke out the joy, things that choke out the beauty from our lives. And, and these weeds in our hearts, they come in the form of anxiety, of fear, of anger, of lust, of greed, of bitterness. And they choke out the life, and they choke out the joy, and they choke out the, the peace that we long to experience. And, and these weeds in our lives and our hearts, they have a common source in all of us. They all grow in the soil of self-focus and pride. They all grow in the soil of self-focus and pride, and we don't see them uprooted until our hearts are bowed low. Now, today's lesson is not just essential to salvation. It is, <laughs> but it's also essential to sanctification, and that's becoming more like Jesus and growing in the Christian life. Now, if, you're, if you've heard this story before of King Nebuchadnezzar, you may be thinking, well, man, I know this story. It's just about don't be proud and, and, and know that God is king. Um, I know that one. Now, just tell me something I don't know. But let me ask you this. Do you see change in your life? Do you see sin patterns persist in your life? Do you struggle with anger, with greed, with lust, with anxiety, with fear, with bitterness? Because if you do, and we all do, every single one of us, then you need this today, and I need this. You see, this is not just the most essential lesson for salvation, but also for sanctification. King Nebuchadnezzar had a problem that we all have, and the lesson that he learns didn't just serve as a spring leading to the waters of God's saving grace but also as the path, the only path, leading to the waterfall of God's changing grace. It's not just an issue of life and death, heaven and hell. It is, but also one of living in the continual presence of peace and joy and submission to the true King. 
So we started with verse 37, and, and uh, that's kind of the happy ending, right? That's the end, end of the chapter. It's kind of the happy ending. We love happy endings. This summer has just felt like one um, Disney-type movie after another this year with, with Pets and Dory. And uh, if you've got kids, probably like me, you're reminded that it's the summer of those kind of movies. Every time I get in the car and I hear those seven words, Daddy, can we please get a happy meal? Because they've all got a little toy in them from Pets or whatever. Um, but we love, we love happy endings. And most of those type movies, they have happy, warm, fuzzy endings. But almost every story has a character who experiences a season of lowness before joy, a season of strife before success, a season of heartache before happiness. And this chapter today, this letter from uh, the, the King Nebuchadnezzar that God has included in the Holy Word, it ends on a high note. But what we see in Neb's life and what we see in ours is that your fullest and highest and lasting joy will only flow from an emptied and lowly heart. Your fullest and highest joy will only flow from an emptied and lowly heart. Now let's just kind of walk through this text together. Um, first, I want to remember the backdrop here. This was a really, really hard time for God's people. Um, the Babylonians had conquered God's people and captured them due to their idolatry and their unfaithfulness, and had carried them to Babylon, where things looked really, really bleak. And Babylon, and really, in a sense, the ancient world, um, Nebuchadnezzar was king of, of Babylon and kind of over, just, he was just a big guy. He was a big king. And uh, Babylon was ruled by Nebuchadnezzar, who was a, a really egotistical um, and oppressive ruler and king. But Daniel had found favor with the king, and through Daniel's God, the true God, King Nebuchadnezzar had really seen some awesome things. He had seen some awesome things. Remember from chapters 1 through 3, um, he had had... Nebuchadnezzar had had this dream that only Daniel could interpret through help from the true and living God. And in chapter 3, King Neb, he had built this big old statue out of gold, and it kind of represented himself, and he just called everybody in the land to bow down and to worship this statue. And he said, if you don't, if you don't, you're going to die, right? And you remember from last week's sermon, um, Daniel and his friends, they said, they, or Daniel's friends, they said, no, they refused they refused to bow down and worship the king. And he had this fiery furnace heated to umpteen million degrees, and he had them thrown in. And King Nebuchadnezzar saw God protect these men. And all of this was showing, was God showing King Nebuchadnezzar God's might and God's power and God's character. So King Neb had seen some awesome things. And when we left in chapter 3, having he had just seen all of these things. He had seen God save. He had seen God protect these men. And he said this in verse 28 through 29 of chapter 3. He said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those were the ones who had been thrown into the fiery furnace. He said, No other God can save like this. But as chapter 3 ends, and we know that his heart hadn't changed. We know that his heart had not changed. Likely, he had just added the greatness of Daniel's God to the list of all his other little false gods, all the things that he bowed his heart to and worshipped. You see, he gave praise with his mouth, but his heart was far from the true God. Because chapter 4 will show that his heart was still bent on self-worship, not worship of the true king. He was a really, really religious man, right? He was really religious. And he affirmed with his mouth, God is great. He said the right things, but his heart couldn't be further from the king. 
In chapter 4, his heart was so far from God, and his life was so rooted in the toxic ground of pride that God will go to an extreme measure to humble him. And that gets us to point number one. First point this morning is the true king, the king of heaven, wants your heart. The true king wants your heart. You see, make no mistake about it. God doesn't need you. God doesn't need me. God needs nothing. God doesn't need our praise. But God wants your heart because he loves you and he knows your heart was made to worship him and be satisfied in him. God doesn't need us, but he's the only one worthy of praise. And his holiness demands our praise. You see, he needs us no more than the giant oak tree needs the tiniest of leaves. But when that leaf is nourished by the tree and it gets its life from the tree and its sustenance from the tree and it bears the lush color, the lush green color that highlights the beauty and strength of the tree that gives it life, that's an awesome thing. The king of heaven, the king of the universe wants you satisfied in him to highlight his glory and for your joy. But King Nebuchadnezzar did what so many do. He did what so many do. He says, God is great. He says God is great, but his heart was not changed. And he just added God to the list of other things that he worshiped, that his heart bowed down to. And he was just a religious professional, not a passionate follower of the king. In the middle of chapter 4, we're going to see that Nebuchadnezzar was singing his own praise. He was oppressing the people, and it shows that his heart was not changed. But friends, the true king... The true king wants your heart. He wants your heart. Think about how, it, how despicable it is to God, the God of the universe, who des- deserves nothing short of all of our heart and all of our praise when all we give him is our verbal praise, but not our heart and our lives. Think about if I treated my wife that way, right? Think about if I, if I told her, you know, oh, baby, I love you. You're awesome. You are everything to me. You are my heart's desire. I'll be your Romeo. You'll be my Juliet, whatever. Um, I love you. There is no one like you. But then I go out and I give my heart unchecked to pursuing, to lusting after, to craving, to being with other women, and giving my time and my heart and my best to them. How despicable would that be to her? You know, God sent King Nebuchadnezzar to a field to sleep. I might as well do the same because I promise you I wouldn't be sleeping in the bed, right? I don't want to give my verbal praise to God. And then my heart to the intoxicating and toxic lust of this world. To turn away from the fountains of living water. To put my lips in the mud and the muck of this world's poisoned waters. The true king wants your heart. And then your life will display that he is of ultimate worth. I want, and I hope you want, to savor Jesus all of your days. To find your satisfaction in him. See, we all worship We all worship, just like King Nebuchadnezzar. We're worshipers. Romans 1 tells us that. The question is, are we going to worship the creator or the creation? Are we going to worship ourselves or are we going to worship the king? So chapter 4 is a letter about a king telling the story of a lesson learned. And um, it begins with this intro, verses 1 through 3. It's kind of got this intro in the present. I want you, you think intro, just think Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, right? Think of that. There's an intro that's in the present, right? This is a story all about how my life got flipped, turned upside down, right? And then he says, I'd like to take a minute and sit right back. I'll tell you how I became the prince of a town called Bel Air. And then goes back in time to tell the story, right? 
And that's what we got here. He goes back in time to tell his rags to riches story. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar's story is about how his life got flipped and turned upside down. But instead of telling how he became the prince, Neb's journey is not one from rags to riches, but riches to rags. From being the king to having nothing. From eating filet to eating hay. Let's look at verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar, again, was king of Babylon, kind of over the big guy in the ancient world. He was not among the people of Israel, not among God's people. But this lesson was so important that God preserved this letter to be in the Scriptures for us to learn by. And King Nebuchadnezzar is writing to all peoples, nations, and languages. And remember in chapter 3, Remember how he built the statue and demanded all people worship, all peoples, nations, and languages bow to it, bow to him. Now in chapter 4's intro, God's, God's already done some heart surgery here. And King Nebuchadnezzar is no longer using his influence to call for self-worship, but for worship of the true king. So he's using his influence to affect anyone who will listen. And the king has the ear of all. Can you see how important this is to him, how passionate he is about this? As chapter 4 begins, he now has a passion to declare what the most, in verse 2, what the most high God has done. So what happened to change his heart? What happened to change King Nebuchadnezzar's heart? We're going to see very soon what got him to the point where in verse 3, he just busts into this song of praise as he reflects on God's grace. He says, how great are his signs. How mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion endures from generation to generation. Let me just ask you this. Is that where your heart is this morning? Is that where your heart is this morning? When you think back on what God has done, do you well up in praise? If not, let's just keep going and let's see what leads him to singing. And I pray that we allow the Spirit to take the Word and stoke the fire in our hearts this morning. Verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. You see, he had built this amazing kingdom. Things were flourishing. The land was green. The flowers were blooming. He built these these awesome gardens for his wife that were like one of the, the wonders of the ancient world. And they were gorgeous. And Everybody was talking about it, and people came from all over to see these gardens and to see the things that he made. He built this fortified city. He squashed anyone who'd get in his way. He had power. He had this, this beautiful wife. Mama was happy, has people to run it all. You know, and Neb's just enjoying a staycation. He's just enjoying a staycation because it's time to rest and just enjoy his peace and enjoy his prosperity. Verse 5 through 6, he says, I saw a dream. That made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Uh oh. King Nebuchadnezzar now has a problem. Verse 5 this is, this is something that Hebrew scholars, biblical theologians call a nightmare. You may have experienced one of those. He has a bad dream, and he wants to know what it means. Cause all the wise men in Babylon to interpret it because he is really, really troubled. Now, we should just pause right here and be reminded that no matter what we create in this life, 
We cannot create, we cannot manufacture true rest, true peace, lasting satisfaction. There is no lasting rest for our souls outside of worshiping the true king. He built the best. He had all the money. He insulated himself with guards. He fortified the city. He had the wife. He had all the power, could have all the fleshly desires, yet his heart and his mind here could not rest. Verse 7. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. Now, back in chapter 2, you may remember, King had a dream, and some from this kind of his people, some of his, his guys came, and they failed dream interpretation 101, and, and they got destroyed. They got crushed by the king. He was a harsh king, and he's given some of his crew a redo now. <laughs> and again, none in the land could interpret it. Verse 8, at last Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream. I told him the dream. So he calls Daniel, who the pagans called the chief of the magicians, and who by God's grace and help had correctly interpreted the dream back in chapter 2. And he believed, verse 9, he believed Daniel could interpret it with the help of his God. Now, um, you, you've got kids, you're, you probably experienced some uh, crazy dreams. You may have had crazy dreams. I got a four-year-old, and he woke up screaming a few weeks ago uh, with this nightmare in the middle of the night, and we checked on him, and he had dreamed that he had his favorite thing, a barbecue potato chip. He was holding one, had extra barbecue on it, and he, he, was, he was being chased by a ferocious Tom and Jerry who were after his barbecue potato chip, and he was in a panic. He was screaming bloody murder in the middle of the night. Um, and I thought that was a weird dream. I thought that was a crazy dream. But we're going to hear King Nebuchadnezzar had a strange dream and a long dream and a detailed dream in verse 10 through 17 that is uh, long, and I'm going to paraphrase it for us. Um, we're reading a lot of text today, so I'm going to just tell you this one. Um, it, it, he saw this big, tall tree that kind of extended throughout the earth. And he could see, he could see that this tree um, it had beautiful fruit and abounding fruit, abundant fruit and would feed all and has shade for all and would provide rest for all. And he saw, it says in quotations, a holy one come from heaven who said, chop it down, cut the branches, scatter the fruit, but leave the stump bound in the field with iron and bronze. And then it kind of transitions. It says, let him, uh-oh, let him be wet with dew. Let him be with the beast in the field and let his mind become like the mind of the beast for seven years. Verse 17 says, and this is a key verse, so that, so that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. And in verse 18, again, he asked Daniel to interpret and is confident that with the help of his God, Daniel can do this. Now, this is, a, this is an opportunity for, for Daniel to, to, to get it right or maybe get his head lopped off. You know, verse 19, it says, Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. His thoughts alarmed him as he began to, 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 to be revealed what this dream is about. So, so Daniel had this face that could be read like a book, right? And he showed signs of being troubled, being concerned, probably like, uh, if you like me and everybody else, when you get troubled and concerned and stressed, you got that vein that pops out, you know? And so Daniel was worried, worried. He was probably sweating, probably needed some Old Spice, which I'm sure was around back then. Keep going. The king, 
answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar, Daniel, answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and this interpretation for your enemies. See, what, what, what's happening here is Daniel exhibited really genuine compassion and sympathy for the king, for this pagan king. So much so that trouble for King Nebuchadnezzar caused Daniel to be really, really troubled. And he also, he also cared enough to tell Nebuchadnezzar the truth and let the chips fall where they may. Let me ask you this. Do we genuinely care for and about the welfare of the unbelievers around us? Those who don't know King Jesus. Does it break our heart to see others hurt? To see them headed for judgment? Do we love them enough to tell them the truth about God? I think it was Pastor Sean who I heard asked a question one time. He said, when's the last time that you were moved to tears over the lostness of your neighbor? Now in verse 20 through 27, God's going to enable Daniel to break down this dream for King Nebuchadnezzar. I'm going to read these verses, starting in verse 20. It says, The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, and under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heaven lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beast of the field, till seven periods of time, that's years, pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and that your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. You shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness that your iniqu- and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. So Daniel boldly proclaims and speaks the truth to King Nebuchadnezzar despite the risk. And he calls him in verse 27 to repent, calls him to bear fruit that evidences a repentant and a changed heart. Now here's the point in the story where we might think, <laughs> we're looking at this, we might think, man... King Neb's going to get it now. He, he's going to understand now. You know, he's heard. Surely he's going to turn. That he would see that God is the only true God. Didn't he see the evidence? Didn't he see the miracles? Didn't he see the grace that God was willing to relent if he would only bow his heart and repent? Didn't he see it? Didn't he get it? But he didn't. And before we cast stones, um, let's just remember that we're no different. We're no different We see God's grace every day from his fatherly love and creation that any of us has food to eat and water to drink and air to breathe. We see it all through his word, the beauty of Christ, his saving grace, and we experience his grace in our lives. 
Yet we too are often so slow to think about and to acknowledge His grace. We're slow to, to bow our hearts and to repent of our self-love. So here's a question just to think about. This week, have you been aware of and thankful for God's grace that is all around so King Nebuchadnezzar doesn't heed Daniel's warning in verse 28, and, and here's what it says. It says, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. See, King Neb got what God said if he didn't repent. And God's words always prove true. God's words always prove true. Now let's look at verse 29 through 30. It says, at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. This leads us to point number two. Point number two, pride. Self-focus is our biggest problem. Pride is our biggest problem. Like everyone at times, he was the center of his worship. His heart bowed to the created things, not to the creator king. He did things his way and for his glory, not God's way and for God's glory. And again, before, before we cast stones at King Nebuchadnezzar and say that, well, I would never walk around and proclaim how great I am outside my apartment. I'd never walk around up on the balcony and be like, "Woo, I'm awesome. Look at me. Maybe not. But have you ever exaggerated the truth? Have you ever held too tightly to finances, looked down on someone, grumbled or complained, committed sexual sin? Why? Why do we do those things? At some deeper level and in some way, we're saying my way and for my glory, not God's way and for God's glory. My way and for my glory, not God's way and for God's glory. We may not have said it here with our mouth, but it was here. It was in our heart. So at the core, we're just like Nebuchadnezzar. We're all rotten at the core. We need a new heart. We need a new core. Where I live... Uh, there's a lot of beautiful apple orchards not too far away. And many times, in an apple, the worm actually begins at the core. You're like, what? How does that happen? But the worm, many times, is on the seed, it's on the flower, and the flower falls. It falls from the tree, and the apple begins to grow around the seed and the worm. So the worm then ends up on the inside at the core, and it feasts and eats its way out, destroying the apple from the inside, the sin of self-worship, self-exaltation, loving created things rather than the Creator is at our core. It's at the core of all of us and will eat us alive from the inside out. And that's why the remedy is not external. That's why it's not external but must occur in the depths of our heart, at our core. You see, there's no happy ending, verse 37, like we started with. There's no happy ending for King Neb or us Apart from a new beginning, a new heart, a new core, while bowed down to God, not self. Now let's look at God's response to King Nebuchadnezzar's worship and pride. Look at verse 33. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against King Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. All so that the king would know in verse 32 that the most high rules. Now, verse 33 likely describes an actual documented human condition where somebody thinks and acts like a, an animal. 
But King Nebuchadnezzar now lived in a field. He ate grass like an ox. He covered in dew, totally unkept. Think about how, just get your mind wrapped around how shocking that is. The king, I mean, the, the, the main guy. I, mean, I don't even know who we would have to compare to him. I mean, think the president. Just imagine President Obama or somebody on top of the world, Michael Phelps right now. Or if you want to go kings, King James, you know. From, from championship ring to being the goat king and eating for seven years out in a field? What? I mean, that, that is, that is uh, it's hard to even imagine what that would be like, how big of a story that would be. And in verse 34 and following, we're going to see that after seven years in the field, King Neb's heart is finally brought low, finally bowed down, and now he's ready to exalt the true king and lift high God's name as he burst out in a song of spontaneous praise to the king of heaven. Look at verse 34 and 35. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lift my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? This brings us to point number three. Point number three, worship of the true king begins when we come to the end of ourselves. Worship of the true king begins when we come to the end of ourselves. You see, King Nebuchadnezzar spent seven years like an animal because of deep-rooted pride, self-reliance, living his way and for his glory. And at the end of the seven years, verse 34 says, he lifted his eyes to heaven and blesses the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Finally, his heart was bowed low. He came to the end of himself. He came to God as his only hope. And what happened? Praise and worship flowed. Friends, this is where salvation begins. This is where the bad root begins to lose its grip on the heart. This is where the weeds begin to wither and die. And for the believer, this is also the fertile soil where change happens. Where the bad root of craving the false gods and empty satisfactions of power and control and approval begin to lose their grip, their power, and die. See, he thought he had it all before. He thought he had everything, but he couldn't rest but he lost his grip and he gained everything when he put his hope in the hands of the king. Now he sees the one who can sustain, the one who satisfies, the one who gives and takes away, whose ways are perfect and who is worthy of all praise and all glory and all the praise flows as he rehearses God's grace. He says, I bless the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. To generation. You see, the greatest thing he needed was to find his satisfaction in God and not the empty idols and weeds of the world that look strong but can never sustain. God was so kind to humble him. God was so kind to humble him. And God was so kind to send him to the field to teach him to bow his heart low. You see, Nebuchadnezzar spent seven years in a field. Remember King David? Remember how as a little boy, it was, it was said, he's, he's going to be king. 
little shepherd boy, little weak David. He's going to be king. God chose him to be king, but, but first and after that, God sent him back to the field for years as a shepherd to grow in the field, to mature in the field, to learn how to fight wolves in the field, to learn how to shepherd sheep in the field, to learn how to trust God and to be content in the field. David learned in the field. King Nebuchadnezzar was graciously sent by God to the field to learn what was needed for his heart to know joy in God. And the field was hard, but it was necessary. It was necessary for both. So let me ask you this. Um, where's your field today? Where's your field? Where's your hard place, your place of waiting, your place of learning? What's God taking you through or has taken you through to teach you patience, to teach you to trust Him, to teach you to rest in Him, to teach you to forgive, to teach you to run to Him, to humble your heart? See, God sends us to the field so we'll take our focus off of us and put our whole hope in Him. So we'll learn to trust to fight the wolves of sin that crouch at the door. Friends, don't hate the field. Don't despise the season in the field. Don't hate the season, the hard season that God has you in because God teaches us. We learn many times in the field. Laura's story. Um, I don't know if you, if you know who she is. She's a, she's a Christian singer. Got a beautiful song called Blessings. Um, she wrote an awesome book recently. Um, she and her husband went through a great trial, a great difficulty, still in the midst of it. Her husband had a brain tumor. Um, it really impacted their marriage early on and, and continually. It led to a disability for him. She mo- for, wrote much, faced much tra- tragedy, and, um, and the song Blessings um, is kind of a, a response to that, about trusting God in the, in the field, about trusting God in the hard seasons. But one thing that she says is she says, try, not to, try to learn not to ask so much the question of, God, why would you do this? But God, how? How can your glory be displayed in this circumstance? How can your name be shown as great and your glory be displayed through this circumstance? How can you be glorified and and does my life fit in this circumstance into your greater plan of redemption? You see, God used the field to bring Nebuchadnezzar to the end of himself so he would lift high the name of God. And Nebuchadnezzar doesn't look back and despise the field. He looks up and praises the God who was sovereign over the field. The psalmist says, Better is one day in your courts, God, than a thousand elsewhere. Better is one day walking with you in full satisfaction than a whole life as king, drinking from the tainted waters of the world's pleasures. See, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't look back and despise the field. He looks up and praises the king. You see how his experience, you see how this kind of gives us a, a bit of a picture of the gospel. You see, King Neb had to reach a place where he could do nothing, where he had nothing to offer. We're sinners unable to save ourselves. And our sin had bound us, enslaved us, and put us in a field of torture that we could never escape. We were lost in our sin, sickness, filled with our pride and lust, and couldn't change ourselves and had no desire to apart from God's grace. We were in a field unable to help ourselves and bound from et- for eternal separation from God, having no hope apart from help, having no hope apart from grace. We needed a perfect king to enter our field. 
a perfect king to take our disease, a perfect king to absorb the penalty for our pride, our self-focus, to take the full punishment we deserve and not just die our death, but be conquered, but conquer death and raise to life so that our chains would no longer bind us. And friends, Jesus is that king. He selflessly entered our torturous field, and he willingly took upon himself our sin sickness, though he was totally innocent. And he died the brutal death we deserve, and he faced separation from God that we earned. He ran the grueling race of a champion while we ran the other way, disqualified, kicking and screaming, And he put his gold medal around our neck, on your neck, so that God would see you wearing his medal and say, I approve of you, my child. I love you. You're a champion, not because of anything you did, but because of faith in what I did on the cross for you. Friends, when we get that, that is so freeing. It's so freeing. King Nebuchadnezzar had to learn to bow low and see that we're nothing and that it's not about what we can achieve, but only what we receive with a humble heart. And I want you guys to know, I want you guys to know how much I love the elders here at TCC. And it's not just because of the history. I mean, we had an awesome history together. We had great laughs together, tons of fun times together, and we shared tears together as well. But I love them because they fight. I love them because they fight to, by God's grace, keep their hearts low as they look to Christ for their hope and for their identity. And there is no greater quality in a leader than a humble heart. And there's no greater danger for the church than pride. And I can attest I promise you, I can stand up here before you today and attest that these brothers fight together with a passion to keep their hearts bowed low and God as their source of strength. And TCC, I would just say, please be thankful to God for the leadership that you have here at at this church. A proud heart is a soil in which weeds thrive. The The weeds of anxiety, of fear, of bitterness, of lust, of anger. But when we come to the end of ourselves with a heart bowed low and we receive God's grace, this is where spontaneous and explosive praise comes from, like we see in verse 34 through 35. From a heart fueled by a passion for God. And I want you to know this, and we're going to put this up on the screen, that explosive praise fuels explosive power. I'm going to say that again. I know that's wordy. Explosive praise fuels expulsive power. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Um, just think of it like this. When, when you take your mind, when, you, when your mind takes a truth of God, like King Nebuchadnezzar learned, like God is great, God is powerful, He is awesome. When it takes a truth of God and you roll it around in your mind, and that truth of God begins to affect your heart, and it causes you to love Him more. Love Him more, it leads to more and more affection for God, more and more affection and more and more praise and praise and praise. This is where the weeds of sin in your heart begin to lose their grip as deeper love for God slowly and slowly replaces and expels enslaving patterns of sin. Thomas Watson, I believe it was Thomas Watson uh, a few hundred years ago, um, spoke of the expulsive 
power of a new affection. The explosive power of new affection. He meant that love, affection for God, begins to push out love for and affection for lesser things. You see, as you fall more in love with Christ, you become less attracted to the destructive pleasures that the world offers because Christ will fill you. And that's how change happens. That's how change happens. You see, King Neb's heart of pride was the soil for destructive weeds in his life that we see in chapter um, 3, such as control and power and rage. And those are the normal weeds in the sinful heart, right? Those are the normal ways sin manifests itself in all of our hearts. But now his heart of explosive praise and love for God can become the grounds for the expulsive power against the weeds and sin that entangle and destroy. Point number four, last point, we'll be done. Bowing to the king means we have a story to sing. Tell your story. Bowing to the king means that you have a story to sing. and You need to tell your story. You see, once King Nebuchadnezzar came to worship the true king, he knew he had a story to sing. And he used all his influence. He used his platform to write this letter to all who would listen in order to hold high the name of God. Friends, you all have a platform. All of us have a platform. Your family, your, your friends, your coworkers, your acquaintances that God has placed around you. And every believer has a story of when you came to the end of yourself and bowed low and realized you could not achieve or earn God's favor and you received by faith what He has done for you through Jesus. And if you're a believer, that's your story. Your story is the story of God's grace. Use your platform to tell your story. You don't have to get all fixed up and perfect. You'll never get there before you tell your story. You don't have to think your brokenness is too bad or too embarrassing. Every story of saving grace is a story of a proud heart being brought low. It's a story of a broken life being made new. If it's not, then it's just a religion story. It's not the story of the gospel. God redeems and restores messy sinners who bow low. You can tell your story. You know why? Because the hero of every story is Christ. It's not about you. The hero of every story is Christ. The hero of King Nebuchadnezzar's story is Christ. The hero of Moses' life is Christ. The hero of David's life is Christ. The hero of the Apostle Paul's life is Christ. He is the creator of all. He is the ruler of all. He is unmatched in glory. Christ is the true hero. He was the better Adam. He's a better deliverer than Moses, better king than David. He's a better prophet than Isaiah. He is the treasure in the field, and he is the pearl of greatest price. He brings dead hearts to life. Our broken story points to his unmatched glory. He is the true king, and he is due the praise of everything. He is the one who supplies the only thing that satisfies. His love endures, and his heart is pure. He redeems with grace, and he is worthy of praise. And when our rightness was at zero, Christ came and became our hero. No greater thing do we need than to bow low to the king. So look at your heart. Look at your heart. And I ask this question. Are you bowed low today? Or are you living with your focus on yourself? One way to know, are you consumed with, and if, are you overwhelmed by God's grace? 
Ask yourself this, why do I do the things that I do? Is it so people will praise me, or is it so people will praise the king? Now, I started today with a story from the golf course, um, and and here's the way that story ends. Um, I pulled weeds all day that day, and the pro, the king of the course, he gave me a job. He gave me a job, but uh, it wasn't a normal job. In fact, it wasn't even at the course. It wasn't at the golf course. I got to spend the summer working at the king's house. It was a big house, and it was on the lake, and he gave me a decent wage. Now, I didn't deserve any of it, but every time I got too hot or tired, I got to go jump in and refresh in the cool waters of the lake. Believer, the true king has a place at his house for you. Jesus says, in my father's house, there are many rooms, and I go there to prepare a place for you, and I will come again, and I'll take you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. The true king has prepared a place for you, and it's as secure as King Nebuchadnezzar's throne was after seven years in the field. You see, God promised that when King Nebuchadnezzar bowed low, He'd restore him to the throne. And in verse 36, he did. Seven years in the field, and God preserved the throne and restored a king who had lost his mind. That is incredible. That is unheard of. You see, God always keeps his word, and God always secures his promises. And as you bow to the true king, and as you lift him high, I pray that your heart will explode in praise. And when the heat of life burns like the summer sun, that you can dip in the cool lake of gospel grace that pours over your soul like a waterfall as you know that you are a child of the kings. Let's pray. God, you are so good. Your love is unfathomable. We can love because you have first loved us. You set sinners' hearts free. God, let that thought captivate us today so that we go out of here changed, passionate about living for you and your glory with our hearts bowed low to hold your name high for your glory and our joy in you. We love you, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.